You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. How does the latest research in Parkinson's disease help shape our treatment recommendations for our patients? Joining us to discuss this latest research is Dr. Janice Miyasaki, Associate Clinical Director of the Movement Disorders Center and President of the Medical Staff Association at Toronto Western Hospital at the University of Toronto. Dr. Miyasaki, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me. Can you briefly summarize for our listeners basically the neurochemical changes associated with Parkinson's disease and maybe how these really serve as a basis for our treatment? Certainly. As you're aware, over the past decade, we've been trying to decrease our focus on dopamine alone and Parkinson's disease. In the past, we've been concentrating on replacing dopamine in Parkinson's patients, but recently we're starting to broaden that focus as we acknowledge that patients suffer from a myriad of other symptoms such as depression, anxiety, dementia, sleep disturbance, and other disorders that are clearly not dopamine-mediated. And finally, as every neurologist knows, there are many dopamine-resistant symptoms such as gait instability and freezing. And this is a challenge for us to treat for our advanced patients. One of the things we're always confronted with is the genetic basis of Parkinson's disease. Is there truly a genetic basis, and should we be testing our patients with Parkinson's disease for genetic mutations? Well, certainly genetic causes are always coming out in medical literature, and it seems that every time we turn around, there's another gene identified as a potential cause of Parkinson's disease. But we need to keep in mind that fewer than 10% of all patients with Parkinson's disease have an identified genetic basis for their illness. Further, many of the genes that have been identified aren't completely penetrant. That means even if you have the gene, you may never express the illness. And so testing for genetic causes of Parkinson's disease might end up giving patients information that is only partial and information that could cause more distress for them. So at the current time, we generally recommend genetic testing only for patients with clear family histories of a dominant form of Parkinson's disease or in a research setting. And primarily in North America, the research setting is going to be the commonest situation when patients will receive genetic testing. Well, you've obviously been looking at this and trying to move away from a dopamine replacement strategy. What's a delayed start study? So a recent study that many of our colleagues have heard about is the delayed start study for neuroprotective treatments in Parkinson's disease or, in fact, in other illnesses such as Alzheimer's disease and rheumatoid arthritis have also looked at using a delayed start study. And what this means is that every single patient in a study will be exposed to the treatment, but a proportion will start right at the beginning, and then the remainder will start sometime later. In the recent study of risagiline, 
this was nine months difference between the first patients who started on risagiline and then the second group who started on risagiline. The thinking is that if risagiline had a disease-modifying effect, the patients who received it earliest would benefit the most from this disease-modifying effect. And in fact, the risagiline study did show many of the endpoints that we look for in a delayed start study, but it's still not completely clear that risagiline has neuroprotective benefits at this time. How long do you wait in between the starts of the program with risagiline, for example? In this particular study, that's a very complicated question because, of course, it has to be long enough that there will be a difference between the first group and the second group, but it has to be short enough that you aren't actually having the second group of patients progress so much they won't benefit at all from the disease-modifying treatment. And the thinking in Parkinson's disease is that the illness progresses more rapidly within the first two years of onset of the motor symptoms. So in this study, there was a nine-month period between the first group of patients and the second group of patients. Taking that information back as someone who has to treat patients with various medications for Parkinson's disease, what should we be starting with, a dopamine agonist or going right to levodopa? Right. So this is a question that the answer waxes and wanes with time. And for a long period of time, levodopa was the mainstay of treatment. And then in the 90s, we had many more dopamine agonists that became available on the market, such as pergolide, promopexol, emropinerol, as well as cabergoline in Europe. And many of these studies focused on reducing the risk of motor fluctuations, such as wearing off and dyskinesias, that we know occur in about 75% of patients followed over time by five years after starting levodopa. All the studies showed that these drugs, the dopamine agonists, were effective at reducing the motor complications of Parkinson's disease, but there is an expense. And that expense is the robustness of the motor benefit is less with dopamine agonists. As well, there's a higher risk of side effects, and these side effects are mainly orthostatic hypotension, hallucinations or delirium, and another side effect that we're seeing much more commonly, impulse control disorders consisting of gambling, problem shopping, hypersexuality, binge eating, and punding behavior. So at the end of the day, I think the pendulum has swung from we should start everyone on dopamine agonist first and has gone back to a, a middle road. Probably those patients who have less risk of developing dyskinesias, and that would be people over the age of 65 to 69 years of age, could start levodopa and have good motor benefit, and really they have a much less risk of developing disabling dyskinesias. While patients who have a younger onset of illness might want to start the dopamine agonist first, but they should always be counseled about the risk of daytime sleepiness and the impulsivity that can occur with dopamine agonists. And in fact, in my personal practice, many patients have begun requesting levodopa first. And then when they notice some fluctuations, we add a dopamine agonist. Have you noticed any difference in your practice with using 
the levodopa in the sustained release formulation or in the regular formulation? In fact, using the sustained release formulation can be problematic. The benefit is, of course, that it lasts longer. But the drawback is that the actual plasma levels of the levodopa rise more slowly. So, in fact, patients who are dyskinesia-prone will have more dyskinesias until they actually get into the therapeutic level. The other drawback of Cinemet CR is that it's not reliably absorbed. And in our patients who already have gastric motility problems, this is a big problem. So patients are more likely to experience dose failures, at least in my experience, with Cinemet CR. And finally, looking at the CR first study, in fact, there was no benefit to using Cinemet CR first before regular Cinemet in reducing the risk for motor complications. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the latest research in Parkinson's disease is Dr. Janice Miyazaki. Let's get into some treatment questions, and I think that's what a lot of our listeners want to know about. Specifically, recent warnings have come out about using atypical neuroleptics for the behavioral management in the elderly. How do you treat hallucinations in Parkinson's disease? Well, it's important for us, Tony, to separate hallucinations versus behavioral management. When I hear the words behavioral management in the elderly, it usually means the person is aggressive and they're being chemically restrained. In the case of our Parkinsonian patients, they are hallucinating, however, and that's very different. They're actively psychotic. And a study by Getz showed that patients who had hallucinations had a increased risk of being in a nursing home. And when he followed them over the course of a single year, 100% of them died. So this is a very different animal from treating someone who is maybe cantankerous with a little cognitive impairment. The Parkinsonian patient who has hallucinations really is in an agitated, delirious state and needs to be treated. So there is research showing that using atypical neuroleptics is, in fact, useful. And when Getz looked back at some of his patients, he showed that there was a much lower risk of patients becoming, frankly, psychotic and that the survival rate had improved down to 30%. So there's very few things that we as doctors do that have that kind of impact. So treating the psychosis it has a huge impact on patients. The first steps are to reduce drugs that are milder at controlling the motor symptoms but have a greater likelihood of causing confusion. And those would be the anticholinergics first, amantadine, MAOB inhibitors such as selegiline and resagiline, and then considering reducing and stopping the dopamine agonists and using primarily levodopa alone because levodopa has superior motor benefit with a less risk of hallucinations. And then if that doesn't work, we would also use the atypical neuroleptics. Quetiapine has sort of controversial findings, but it doesn't require monitoring, and so it's often the first drug of choice. It's used at 12.5 milligrams twice a day, up to 75 milligrams twice a day. This is still much lower than the typical antipsychotic dose. 
And clozapine is an excellent agent for the treatment of psychosis and Parkinson's disease. Of course, there is a risk of neutropenia, and so patients need to have monitoring that fulfills the requirements for your particular area. But it is excellent at reducing the hallucinations, preserving alertness, and also might reduce tremor and dyskinesias. It's used at 12.5 milligrams up to typically 50 milligrams twice a day would be the, the maximum dose. But patients do extremely well on clozapine for hallucinations and Parkinson's disease. Janice, would practitioners follow the same kind of flow chart that you've just presented when dealing with impulse control disorders or other neuropsychiatric complications of Parkinson's disease? Well, definitely for the impulse control disorders, the main treatment is trying to minimize their dopaminergic stimulation while still maintaining their motor function. And in fact, in in those patients, using atypical neuroleptics has not been proven to be effective. However, if patients have depression and that's why they're indulging in these behaviors, then it is helpful to treat depression. In terms of treating psychosis, of course, I have different resources than many practicing neurologists do, or indeed some psychiatrists are very reluctant to use clozapine. And so in those instances, reducing the medication should be done, as well as, of course, looking for general medical factors that can cause delirium. But then considering some of the cholinesterase inhibitors can be useful at resolving mild delirium, and that would be denepazil at 5 to 10 milligrams a day, galantamine up to a maximum of 16 milligrams per day, and rivastigmine at 3 to 12 milligrams per day. Now, all of these drugs can worsen tremor and Parkinsonism, and so patients and their families need to be cautioned about this. A newer medication, Abixa or Mamantine, which is an NMDA antagonist, used at 20 milligrams per day, showed improvement in dementia and hallucinations without worsening the Parkinsonism. And so this might be the best option for our Parkinsonian patients. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Janice Miyasaki, Clinical Director of Movement Disorders Center and President of the Medical Staff Association at Toronto Western Hospital University Healthcare Network at the University of Toronto. Janice, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tony. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.